Thank you, Brian. There's uh, quite a few gaps. It's uh, perhaps a half rapture. Uh, so we must all be mid-trib. Uh, I'm going to start with Jenny reading the psalm that um, I, I am looking at this morning. Yes, Psalm 45. The, this is the NIV version. My heart is stirred by a noble theme as I recite my verses for the king. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. You are the most excellent of men, and your lips have been anointed with grace since God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your side. O mighty one, clothe yourself with splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride forth victoriously on behalf of truth, humility, and righteousness. Let your right hand display awesome deeds. Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. Let the nations fall beneath your feet. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has sent you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. All your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia from palaces adorned with ivory. The music of the strings makes you glad. Daughters of the kings are among your honored women. At your right hand is the royal bride in gold of Ophir. Listen, O daughter, consider and give ear. Forget your people and your father's house. The king is enthralled by your beauty. Honor him, for he is your Lord. The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. Men of wealth will seek your favor. All glorious is the princess within her chamber. Her gown is interwoven with gold. In embroidered garments she is led to the king. Her virgin companions follow her and are brought to you. They are led in with joy and gladness. They enter the palace of the king. Your sons will take the place of your fathers. You will make them princes throughout the land. I will perpetuate your memory through all generations. Therefore, the nations will praise you forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So, I am switched on. That's not what they used to say about me in the army. <laughs> However, it sounds as though I might be. Um, as you might expect, when uh, I was asked a couple of weeks ago by Nigel to preach, I thought, ooh, I'm going to talk on signs. He said, could you do something on royal psalms? So, uh, of course, I am under his leadership in these matters, and I'm delighted to talk to you about a royal psalms. I tell you a mystery. I tell you a truth. We are in unprecedented times of unveiling. We really, really are. We're in a new time. It really is a new time. Everything in this book has a reason. Everything in this book has a time, 
And everything in this book points to Jesus. We are witnessing a convergence of events, of understanding, of revelation, the like of which has never been seen before. The pieces of a very complicated jigsaw are falling into place. And I tell you, there are not many more pieces. We are close to something that is preached, which is covered, which is, uh, the Bible leads to throughout the story. We're approaching the revelation time, the end times. This biblical prophecy, in fact, the whole Bible points to and magnifies Jesus, uh, and the Psalms are no exception to that basic principle. Uh, as you, uh, you who were here last week will know, we started the series with uh, Nigel talking about the Psalms of Lament, and uh, you will find on the piece of paper the first few lines under the Psalms, Israel's prayer book, are the same as in the handout that Nigel did last week. The Psalms are a product of a community of faith. Uh, They contain a range of songs and prayers. They contain a great or great examples of Hebrew poetry. And they address the mind and the heart. Uh, The range of deep emotions from extremely happy to very sad uh, and everything in between. We're looking, as, as it says here, at lament, psalms of lament, psalms of celebration, uh, psalms of thanksgiving, uh, psalms of trust and praise. I was asked to look at uh, royal psalms, which actually are a small element of the psalms of celebration. They're a specialist element of psalms of celebration. In fact, when you look at the psalms, that we have sort of compartmentalise them here into four groups, but there is a lot of overlap between the groups. So don't, uh, please don't feel as though we are missing the fact that there's a, a wide range of overlap. So this is number two, Psalms of Celebration, the Royal Psalms, and they are Psalms 2, 18, 20, 21, 45, 72, 101, 110, and 144. So if I go through all those, we, I, I, at this point I'll take off my watch. When a preacher takes off his watch, it means he's got a watch. Um, if I went through all those psalms, uh, we would be here for a week or a month probably. So I focus on Psalm 45. Uh, you might say, how did I pick that one? And it's because it's in the middle of the range I was given. You know, it's a sort of military approach. Uh, go for the midpoint if you're not sure what to do. Um, the, the, the Psalms actually, on the, on the whole, uh, the royal Psalms cover the significance of the kingship of Israel and evidence of the special relationship uh, of the king as God, God's the ultimate king's representative. 
a king at that time really was acting, or a, an Israeli king, a king in Israel, was acting as a vice-regent um, on earth. And these psalms contribute to our understanding of Israel's worship uh, and to the theological significance of the king in Israel. In effect, the king is acting as the adopted son of the Lord God Almighty. And therefore it was a huge responsibility. And some were better at it than others. Uh, most of these psalms were written for a coronation or anniversaries of the coronation. And uh, Psalm 2, for example, uh, is about God uh, installing his king. Psalm 18 goes outside it. That's a celebration by David for being rescued from his enemies and also particularly from Saul because when David was anointed to be king, Saul was still king and had a previous anointing and he wasn't too happy, as you might imagine, handing his anointing on. But, and that's what uh, the psalm is, is thanking God uh, for protecting David from Saul's attacks against him. The Psalm 20 is about King David expressing that some people put their trust in things, but he and we should put our trust in God. So Psalm 45 is in two parts, and it is different from these these others in that it is a wedding psalm. And uh, that... Uh, is it, it actually, first of all, the first half uh, glorifies the king and the second half talks about uh, the bride's approach and then the wedding procession. We will, we will come into that in a bit more uh, detail, but, but as a love song or a wedding song, and it's also, there's a superscription, uh, which I'm not sure if we can have the, uh, the screen up, please, of the first part of the psalm. I'm not sure whether we've... Have we got the... Yes, we've got the superscription. Um, and, and we will look at the first one to nine, the bits that are exploring uh, the beauty of the king and, and his responsibilities. And then we will look at the second part, which is about the wedding procession and so forth. But the superscription tells us it is... Uh, a, a wedding song or a love song uh, it tells us it is a masculine which some theologians interpret a masculine uh, as being a teaching psalm so, so it has something both for the head and something for the heart um, and uh, the, the, the sons of Korah have written a few psalms, and you can follow that up if you wish in research. Uh, the sons of Korah, that, that is actually the male descendants of the family of Korah. And when they talk about sons in the Bible, it may actually be grandsons or great-grandsons or great-great-great-grandsons. It's the line of Korah, and they were uh, uh, temple porters or servants and also songwriters in the temple. Uh, so we then look to see who this psalm is about, which king. Tradition has it that it is about King Solomon. 
And he reigned at 970 to 930. That's not 930 in the evening, that's BC. And uh, so this, song, this psalm was probably, well, it had been written somewhere between 970 and 930 BC. Uh, but we're not quite sure which wedding it relates to. Though we think, or, the, or the, I'm told when I read into this theological explanations, it's, I'm told uh, that it was a princess of Egypt that he was marrying. But you will also find that there were, uh, he had 700 wives. Now that means the sons of Korah must have been pretty busy writing songs for 700 weddings. I don't know if it quite worked like that, but uh, it's a wonder really that the Bible isn't full uh, of uh, songs or Psalms, the book of Psalms isn't full of songs. Talking about the book of Psalms, I'm just going to distract myself a little bit. There are actually five books of Psalms. So when people tell you there are 66 books in the Bible, one of those books they're saying is the book of Psalms. But actually there are 70 books in the Bible because there are five books of Psalms. Now it just seems to me, and this is really uh, off the cuff, that uh, 70 is a much nicer number of books in the Bible than 66. But I won't unpack that. Uh, I'll leave you to think about that uh, as as time goes on. Right, so, um, I don't know about when you watch a preacher, I put the paper on the bottom so you have no idea how far I am through the pages. Uh, it's, uh, It's always a bit sort of disturbing at times when you especially if you're doing some of these games to pick out the words, to make sure I've used every letter in the alphabet and so forth. Uh, Anyway, the beauty of the king, verse 2. I think it's interesting to contrast the beauty of the king shown here with the beauty, uh, or rather the non-beauty of the king shown in Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 52. Uh, you will remember that in 53 verse 2 of Isaiah it says he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him no appearance that we should be attracted to him and then uh, it it is later says in 52 14 they're in the reverse order but then I could talk about Isaiah Isaiah takes snapshots of things and you don't really want to go through the order of Isaiah but they don't always follow the the order of events that have subsequently taken place Uh, never it says uh, uh, his appearance was marred more than any man so here we here we have a a picture of Jesus at his first advent uh, and he was not uh, recognised for who he was by many, many people as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But in this psalm, they must be, because it becomes clear as you read it, it's not about Solomon, it's about Jesus. And, and he must, they must be talking about how he looks now in heaven and how he will look when he returns for the second advent to be our king and our leader. And I'll come back to that in a minute. A minute in Luke 4:22. Um, I'm moving, moving really to a point where the beauty of the King is is revealed here in the words that come out of his lips. It says it's uh, the it's the flow from his lips 
displays his beauty, as well as being a wonderful person to behold, um, Jesus was recognised for the power of his speech by everybody, friend and foe alike in truth, uh, and the authorities had great trouble when he spoke in the temple. They sent the guard because they were very upset. And again, I, I don't have time to unpack a lot of the things in this, but they sent the guard to arrest him. But the guard came back empty-handed and was summoned before the priests and the Pharisees and asked why they had not arrested him as they were ordered. And their answer was, never did a man speak the way this man speaks. And later in Luke 4.22, uh, there's, there's a line there that said, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Verses 3 to 5 talk about the strength of the king. And it's described here in terms of military prowess. The king is seen strapping on his sword and riding on a white, riding to victory in the cause of truth, humility and righteousness. The book of Revelation presents a similar picture with a, a, a very significant uh, difference and that shows the king riding forth on a white horse with the sword unsheathed. They actually depict it as coming from his mouth, the sword being the word of God that cuts to the heart of of, of all of us and, and reveals the gospel to us. The word of God reveals to us who Jesus is. And Jesus rides forth uh, in, to, on a white horse to victory. Um, it's imagery of the power of his word. The gospel that goes forth and strikes to the very heart of men and changes their lives forever. It's a point here, the whole Bible shows, uh, it, has, you know, it has a full story, beginning to, to, the, to the end. And the, the word of God will accomplish, will accomplish what it is designed to accomplish. God is the beginning and the end. God is the Alpha and the Omega God has started something, set something in train. He will complete it. Again, as a bit of an aside, I will say, if you start something that is not from God, then don't be surprised if it doesn't reach a satisfactory conclusion. We need to be sure that all we do, we are led by the Lord and that we are going into something that he has given us to do. And if we are led into something that he's given us to do, we can be assured that it will be fulfilled. The righteousness of the king, verses 6 and 7. This, uh, These... Lines are actually quoted in Hebrews 1 verses 8 and 9, where the writer of the epistle says that it is a reference to Jesus. So there can be no doubt. It's repeated in Hebrews, and the expression that this is about Jesus is made absolutely clear. The righteousness of the king. When we first come to know Jesus we may not appreciate how great he is. We may come to him through 
his teaching, or, or we may come through uh, hearing about his miracles, uh, or, or, the, or we, may, we may come through various reasons recognizing him as a rabbi, recognizing him as a prophet. But the fact is that he is all those things and much, much more. Uh, in Revelation uh, 1.17, John, who knew Jesus well and who many consider was Jesus' best friend, fell at his feet as though dead when he saw Jesus in his risen glory. The size and magnificence and wonder of Jesus is far greater than we can comprehend. C.S. Lewis understood this and expressed it uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia. He said, when Lucy returns to the magic land and sees Aslan, Aslan is the Christ figure in C.S. Lewis's book, uh, she says, Aslan, you are bigger. Aslan answers, that is because you are older, little one. Lucy asks, not because you are bigger, I am not, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And the point here is, as we grow in knowledge and understanding of Jesus, his breathtaking awesomeness grows ever greater. So don't think you've even begun to understand the capabilities, the power, the authority, the wonder of Jesus, because we haven't. The quality represented in these verses is the quality of righteousness. God is righteous. God demands righteousness of his creation. The good news of the gospel is that through Jesus Christ, God has freely made available to us the righteousness which he demands. He is the very fulfillment of our needs and demands. His grace is magnificent. His grace is sufficient. His grace is free. Our only obligation is to recognize who Jesus is. Verse 7, the anointing of the king. The Hebrew word used here in the original is meshka, which is the root word for Messiah, which literally means the anointed one. In Isaiah 11.2, it says, The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And Acts 10.38 says, You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. Uh, power. Incredibly, amazingly, fantastically, whatever word you like to use, these things are available to us. If we come to Christ in faith, we have the same anointing. 1 John 2.20 says, The same Spirit that was upon Jesus the same spirit that was upon Jesus has also been given to us. It really is incredible. I mean, I don't know how to express it sometimes. I'm overwhelmed by the whole, the whole thing. Uh, so in not knowing how to express it, perhaps I should just move on. But you understand. 
We've got to get a grip of the, of the fact that we have the anointing. In fact, Brian talked about it a bit earlier. We are uh, representatives. We have Jesus in us. We are powerfully, uh, we have available to us the full power that Jesus uh, has. But we don't use it. We're not bold. We don't step forward as we should. The joy of the king, verses 7 and 8. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. Jesus was referred to as a man of sorrows, but he was also a man imbued with joy. Hebrews 12, 2 speaks of how he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. And at the Last Supper, he said to uh, the disciples, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. We have a duty and a calling to be filled with joy. Our problem is that we go looking for joy in the wrong places. We look for things to bring us joy. Or we look for people to make us joyful. We look for circumstances to bring us joy. I tell you something interesting, that hedonism, which is a Greek word from Greek philosophers, and you can just think about that, it it is actually uh, the view that the pursuit of happiness is the main aim of man. It's a Greek myth, and you know we've seen quite a few Greek myths recently, I don't know if you've spotted them, (laughs) I'll tell you something that... uh, Derek Prince said, and I'll, just, I'll, I'll quote this directly from Humanism, Forerunner for Antichrist is the title of his book. And Derek Prince is wonderful, a wonderful teacher. He said it's of Greek origin. Phyllis, he was a Greek scholar, by the way, and studied these things in depth before he came to the Lord. Uh, it's a philosophical meaning, the ethical theory that pleasure, in the sense of satisfaction of desires, is the highest good and proper aim of human life. So Derek Prince writes, Thus it matches the atheistic goal of humanism, the denial of any power or moral value superior to that of humanity. The rejection of a religion in favour of a belief in the advancement of humanity by its own efforts, which results in a complete absence of any binding moral code. This left man free to be his own God and to establish his own moral code. So how do you pursue joy? Do you go on vacation? The root of the word vacation is vacant, doing nothing. Or do you go on holidays? The root, of course, is holy days. Holy days of celebration. It is through celebration such as eating with friends, drinking with friends, gathering with our loved ones, singing and dancing as God's people, praising him and studying the word and gathering to reflect upon the wonderful blessings of God that we find joy. Our joy is in realising that we are part of this love song and realising that this king is our king. Next part two, instructions for the bride. Verse 10 onwards, the instructions of the bride are to forget the past 
And I reckon that is very good advice. We need to forget the past. And those people, like the, in the Exodus, they, 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 every time they came up to a difficulty, they hankered back to be in Egypt as slaves. Forget the past and move forward. Uh, Phil, I'll, I'll actually move on a bit because we are going to be a bit pressed for time. Um, Moving on to verse 11, this is something else that's been, that's been mentioned. The king is enthralled by us. You might find that hard to believe, and I could unpack it considerably, but he says and he knows that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And that is our spirit that is fearfully and wonderfully made. We are his joy, and we should honour him, and he is worthy of our honour. The wedding procession, I want to quickly talk about. Um, the church is described in the Bible of, as uh, the bride of Christ in Revelations 19, 7 and 8, 21, 9 and 22, 17. In this psalm, it, it uh, ends with a vivid description of a wedding procession. And it may be helpful just quickly to mention something about uh, a, a, a Jewish wedding for you to get a, a, a full picture of it. Before the wedding, the families of the bride and groom meet and announce a betrothal, and the prospective bride and groom give their vow of marriage and exchange ring, rings. At this point, they are legally married and it takes a divorce to nullify the betrothal. However, the groom then goes home to prepare a place for his new bride. And we have that, we have that same message from Jesus. This is a picture of, of the end times with us as the bride of Christ, the return of Jesus. He says, in my father's house there are many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. That's in John 14 too. There are plans to make and a great wedding feast to be prepared. On the appointed day of the wedding, the groom leads a procession to the home of the bride. The bride is waiting and is led out to meet him. The entire procession returns to the home of the groom for the wedding celebration. That's the picture presented in verses 12 to 17. It is a picture of the king of kings and his bride the church. Verse 15, I just want to sidetrack slightly again. Verse 15 says, they are led in with joy. As it happens, uh, Jenny picked uh, for our wedding recessional march 10 years ago, or just under, you shall go out with joy. And it happens that she was in a house share with a girl called Joy. And people repeatedly saying you shall go out with joy was a bit confusing at the time, but I went out with Jenny. <laughs> um, the tense used in the original verse 15 is the Hebrew imperfect, which is used for something that is incomplete, i.e. it's used to express that the event is yet future. That is how the psalm ends, the final wedding procession. It's not yet taken place. 
The king is on his way. Which side are you on? With who do you follow? Actually, if Brian will give me a minute, I'll just mention that when I went uh, to the... He doesn't really have much option, poor chap. When I went uh, to the Ministry of Defence as a, a potential officer, I was summoned for... And I didn't know the, the, the Ministry of Defence or where it was or how it all worked, and I didn't know London. So I was walking up Pall Mall on a very natterly dressed gent in a bowler hat and pinstripe trousers and black jacket, uh, I stopped him and I said, excuse me, do you know which side the Minister of Defence is on? He said, I've often wondered that. <laughs> so my question is to you, my question to you is which side are you on? If we... I tell you, if we're on the right side, we are dressed in the robes of his righteousness, attributed to us through faith. We are waiting the coming of the king. Are you ready? Are we ready? He could come at any moment. Amen. Thank you, Neil, so much. Just to say that Neil's book will really help you over what he's just finished with then, uh, the coming uh, of, uh, of the king uh, back to earth. So I really do commend it to you. Uh, just keep these little notes open uh, for a moment. Thank you so much, Neil, for sharing about the uh, wonderful king. Uh, I would encourage you under one there, just uh, have a look down that little list and uh, just ask God, which is the one that um, uh, is particularly uh, meaningful for you? Because we're going to, before we finish, we're going to share communion. I'm sorry, I forgot to mention that earlier. And uh, uh, it would be really good to take one of these um, uh, <clears throat> into our heart and mind as we share communion. And as we do so, I wanted to bring some verses from uh, Philippians 2, because you all know that our king is a very different king. And uh, he's a suffering servant, a servant king. And I was just going to bring some verses from Philippians 2 uh, to you as we prepare for communion. It's talking about Jesus, and it says this, He, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's the kingship of Jesus. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So he makes himself nothing. He dies on the cross and then he's exalted to kingship over this world and over history. Let's just pause for a moment, shall we? We thank the Lord for the bread and the wine. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you're such a wonderful king. We thank you that you made yourself nothing. You took the very nature of a servant and you humbled yourself 
and became obedient to death, death on a cross. And Lord, we thank you most of all that God the Father raised you from the dead to the, to the right hand of the King, where you now sit. We thank you for your wonderful sacrifice in which we now can share. And as we take the bread and the wine, we want to continue our worship to you this morning. Thank you, Lord.